I just got a letter from my intellectual property lawyer. I guess that's what you call him, Rob Monath, over in Raleigh. And he said that um, the U.S. patent and trademark people have protected a phrase that a marketing guru came up for my commercial product, Voice Locket. And that phrase is, whose voice do you want to save? It's a question. And so now I kind of have that question on hold. I own it, if you will. But it's a provocative one because if we don't save and elevate these voices, and in this case, the voices of women, then a lot of times we don't know about them or they're lost. And the stories are incredibly powerful. So I would ask you, if you know a person who's older or younger, whose voice do you want to save, to preserve, so that if for any reason they're not speaking anymore, could be a stroke, could be a sudden unexpected death, a car wreck, that you'll never have to frantically go through voicemails or whatever, you'll be able to preserve it. And that's what I do if you look at voicelocket.com. So I'm very happy about that, as I am for preserving absolutely free the voice of Shelby Perry this week. Why would this happen to me? And I just felt like, oh my gosh, I put all this work in to get sober and I finally am like on this good path and then this would happen to me. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson. This week, my great privilege to hear from a beautiful young woman from San Diego named Shelby Perry, who got sober only to then lose her eye in kind of a strange accident. But these kinds of accidents happen all the time. This one was snowboarding. Some people have hit in the eye with a baseball. Even if they're in the stands, some people have cancer, some people have car wrecks. Happens a lot more than you think that there's this kind of what you think of as disfiguring accident, but she has leaned into it and shown the incredible power of community with a business called iHesive, E-Y-E-H-E-S-I-V-E, iHesive.com, and also the One Eye Gang. So she has really built the following. A wonderful story, Shelby Perry. Where were you born? I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah. My limited impression of Salt Lake City, wide streets and very clean. Yeah, I think they do a really good job at 
keeping it clean and it's very if you once you get to like know it it's like um it's a grid system so like all it, you know there's just like from the temple at the center of the city everything like that goes is like a grid so it's quite easy to navigate once you like learn it but everything's numbers so that can be confusing for people and i know when the olympics were there in the early 2000s they did like a lot of renovations i guess people are healthy they're uh athletic they get out mm -hmm. yes yes well we have so much to do um you know in the winter and in the summer that keeps everybody active you know and people are really passionate about being in the mountains and snowboarding and mountain biking or dirt biking or whatever it is or hiking and uh so there's just doesn't matter if it's like snowy there's still things to do in the winter too what should I know about your mother or father to understand you? My parents are divorced. They got divorced when I was like pretty young, um, but we split equal time between the two of them. Uh, they're both very, very chill, <laughs> sweet, easygoing people. Like there's, you know, not a lot of on either side, I'd say like sternness or discipline pretty much they just like kind of let us you know do what we want to do and figure it out and like make our mistakes and learn along the way supportive yeah very supportive but not the typical like you have to go to college you have to get a good career and you have to do this and like you know follow in these steps like it was very much like you know do what you want to do and you know fly your wings so when you were two years old before the world got to you, your mother would have said, Shelby was so what? I was a terrible baby. So I didn't sleep through the night. I yeah, had a lot of, I don't even know what it was called. But my mom always said, like, if I was the firstborn, I would have been an only child. Very rambunctious, super sensitive. I cried a lot, just like all the way up until like my teenage years. I, uh, yeah, it was while I got into a lot of trouble, like just, you know, innocent trouble, but I was like always on the move. Like I have a lot of energy still to this day, but especially when I was younger, it was never napping, never sleeping, just going. And when you got into school, how did you channel that energy? Yeah, I played a little bit of sports. They tried me in all the different things. Um, I've, now I feel like I'm more athletic. Then I wasn't very, you know, I was decent. I wasn't very good at <laughs> anything I tried, but they really encouraged that. And I think, you know, school was always a challenge for me too. I was very social. I didn't really excel in any one particular subject. And I just wanted to like be social and hang out with my friends. Um, but I did start, I got a job when I was like 15. I was very like um, motivated on like working and my work ethic and like schedule and making money <laughs> it was kind of my, uh, I guess, outlet. Just... What was that job? Um, so my very first job was like a telemarketer at this little like telemarketing company they had in my town. Um, what were you selling? Give yeah. me your speech. Yeah, <laughs> I don't remember the exact speech. And we weren't actually selling anything. We were doing surveys, you know. So and this was before 
really kind of before right before cell phone so we were calling like home landlines and just like getting these people to take surveys and some of the surveys were I remember being like 20 or 30 minutes long and you're trying to like keep the person <laughs> on the phone the whole time and then some of them were shorter and there were surveys that it was like home depot I remember or like different just all sorts of different surveys that I think companies you know wanted to gather and collect this data so better you than selling I guess you seem very personable thanks thanks yeah mm -hmm. i think that's been something i've always <laughs> always carried i mean i would feel guilty hanging up on shelby <laughs> thanks <laughs> so in high school what kind of person were you when you look at the high school yearbook yeah and i actually made a scrapbook i'm pretty like I want to say like artistic, like I can't paint, but I like like crafty kind of stuff, especially when I was younger too. So I, I actually have a whole high school scrapbook, all of my like report cards and just any monumental thing that occurred that year, I like scrapbooked into like one big book. So that's kind of fun to look at. Um, Is there yeah, any put, cringe? Is there no, any cringe? Have you edited? No, have you taken anything uh, out? <laughs> I haven't taken anything out, but I'm very selective of who I show that book to. <laughs> Well, what's the cringe? What do you cringe at now? So much eyeliner, you know, and like, <laughs> the hairstyle was just, you know, and then I, um, yeah, the outfits in general, <laughs> like just lots of layers and nothing like really fit that well. And I was really tall. I've always been really tall. And so just feel like everything was short. <laughs> and then, um, you know, the guys that I picked to go like on the dates and formals and homecoming with were always questionable. <laughs> Like, you know but questionable in what way well i did like the bad boys so you know some of them fell into that or just like i wasn't like i was super social and had a lot of like different friend groups but i um wasn't like super popular it was more of like the edgy like party kind of kid and so those were the guys that i also <laughs> selected as well too you know, I, I grew up in a, a small town. So my, my dad, I was born in Salt Lake City, Utah. My dad's always lived there. And then, like I said, my parents got divorced. And my mom, when I was in fifth grade, moved us to Mount Pleasant, Utah, which is like two hours south of the city, really small town. There, a lot of people get married right after high school. And we're talking Utah as well, too. So it's kind of like, so everyone I know pretty much that I went to high school with is like married with like multiple children at this point, too. So we keep in touch for sure. I, we don't do like girls trips or really get together much. But so what did you do when you graduated high school? I moved back to Salt Lake and lived with my dad at first, just trying to figure it out. And um, I, you know, had like a serving job for a bit. And then I actually got hired. I went, got hired on. I was really into like makeup because at one point, like I said, with my height, I really wanted to be a model. And then I got my esthetician license and was doing waxing and skincare and manicures, pedicures, facials and uh, working in that kind of industry for, for my whole 20s. Did you ever model? No, not like too much. I did little things here and there, but nothing of like big significance. <laughs> didn't move to New York. No, didn't move to New York. You know, I wish that was like a dream at some point too. Um, but I always, you, you know, I kind of, and this is part of my story too, but you know, I, and I've mentioned a few times a little bit on the wilder side, I like, um, like to party quite, <laughs> quite a bit, which kept me, you know, kind of, I don't know if isolated the word. I mean, eventually it did, which then ultimately like led to me getting sober about over 
three years ago, but um, it definitely, you know, all through my 20s kind of kept me, you know, stagnant in my area of like what I was doing. So, well, I don't know that Lauren told you, but I've been sober for 30 years and my biological father drank himself to death. So, um, very familiar with alcohol use disorder and substance use disorder, but I, I want to, I want to, uh, connect the dots about what led you to your decision three years ago. Can you connect the dots for me? Like that's a lot of time. How old are you? I'm 32. Oh, beautiful. That's a great time to get sober. Cherish that. Cherish that. It's wonderful. Thank you. I am. Yeah, I feel very like fortunate um, that I'm, you know, in this place right now and that I have such a supportive community. And I'm also familiar with the 12 steps and I, you know, am very involved with AA. But I guess leading up to it, you know, it was always like I said, that kind of party atmosphere. And, you know, I come from um, an alcoholic father as well, too. And, you know, it was just like so normal. And I didn't really register that it was like becoming such an issue. I mean, there was definitely different points that definitely presented <laughs> as issues, but I was being in denial, I guess, of the situation. And it wasn't until, you know, I was 29 years old and the pandemic actually actually had hit and any sense of like normalcy that I had from my job at that salon and spa. And then I also was a yoga instructor. And I share I'm like, I think that, you know, becoming a yoga instructor was one of my like, thoughts of like, okay, well, if I teach yoga, like I won't drink as much, you know, or that'll like keep my <laughs> my drinking more at bay, which didn't work, you know. <laughs> and so, but by the time the pandemic hit, and like anything that I was, you know, putting that extra energy in wasn't there for me to do. And I found myself, you know, at home. And that's like when it really got to a point where I was like, I can't go on living like this. And fortunately, I have a friend out here in San Diego who is sober. And she at the time had five years. So I called her, you know, like, and I just didn't know what to expect. I was just like a desperate, you know, call for help. And within 24 hours, you know, she had me in, in, in a place out in San Diego at a sober living. She was like, pack your stuff, you're coming out here. And uh, looking back, I'm like, it was such a blessing that I was like, given that opportunity, and that there was like a bed available in the sober living, because things were still all shut down. And we didn't really know what was going on as I was like the midst of it. And my boss was like, just go, you know, take care of you. And I thought for sure that I would just need like 30 days, you know, to, to kind of clear my head. And once I got out here, and I got involved in AA, and we were doing all the meetings on zoom at that time. And started working the steps and, you know, started to feel better. And so that 30 days turned into 60 days and then 60 turned into 90. And I just decided that I wanted to stay. I'd built such like a beautiful, like sobriety community and had like all these opportunities coming my way. And I just loved being in San Diego. So it made sense for me to to stay here. And it's, I mean, it's a night and day difference to, you know, I mean, I'm still the same Shelby, but like, there's so many different, um, I just have different thoughts and I have emotions now and I just have different goals and I just feel like, you know, now's the time. And I'm so fortunate again that I got to to do it now. I see people coming in, you know, at all ages and, you know, younger. Sometimes I wish I'm like, oh, I wish I was younger when I got this, <laughs> but I'm glad it's, you know, you know, in my future now. Is your dad still with us? He is. Yeah. Did he ever get yeah, sober? No. 
no, I've tried him and my brother, you know, have their things. So <laughs> I'm like, I'm here for you, but you know, yeah, there's can't control that. Right. Yeah. Can't heal them. My experience was even if there were a lot of other people around that, um, the end of my drinking was very isolating, mm -hmm. um, that I ran people away and I could only imagine what it'd be like in COVID because you have this reason to isolate. Yeah. So yeah. did that fuel the lonely drinking, the drinking by yourself? Yeah, definitely. And so, I mean, I definitely drink on my own a lot before COVID and by myself before COVID, but I still like, as me, I loved to party. So I was a very social drinker as well, too. I went to all the parties. I did every event. You know, I didn't want to go if there wasn't alcohol. So, I mean, I still ran, you know, relationships into the ground, friendships, like friend groups, you know, so I'd bounce around. But I just like kept finding new, you know, people to party with that would put up with my behaviors until they wouldn't. So when COVID hit and I was fully isolating, you know, that's when I think it just all of a sudden really registered like, you know, this is this is not going to get any better, you know, and I had those thoughts. I was like, well, maybe when I turn 30 or if this happens in my life or if this falls into place, like, you know, all these external things are going to like fix this issue. And so when I was like, you know, alone in COVID drinking <laughs> day in and day out, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, like there this isn't going to be just, uh, you know, something that's going to fix this issue. What did those behaviors look like? They're just wild, um, you know, getting into trouble, you know, drinking and driving. Um, just Did you get arrested? Of, I never got arrested, luckily. I don't know how I pulled that off, but in my DUI, um, they actually like, you know, obviously impounded my car and they told me that if I had, I don't know if they do this anywhere else, but and I don't think this is like super common now. Um, but they had told me, you know, if I had somebody that could come pick me up, that was sober, that they would like release me to them. So that was fortunate. I was able to call someone to come get me. Um, and you know, I still went to court and did all the, the extra other things and had community service and had to take classes, but I did not have to go spend the night in jail so i feel fortunate about that did it uh, stop you drinking no no there's like so many issues you know things that had occurred like i've like broken my leg and like busted out my teeth one time and you know the dui and just like a lot of like romantic relationships that ended poorly because of drinking that you think would be like okay Shelby get sober like and it was none of that you know none of the like the quote-unquote worst things it was me by myself in my bedroom like crying like this is you know officially I had that like emotional bottom that was like what I needed to to reach out for help how did you break your leg I was like at a baseball game, like they have um, like a minor league baseball team in Utah called the Bees. And it was like Thirsty Thursday. So we were all there having a great time. And I just like was running down the steps, like like nothing that crazy. <laughs> and I just like twisted it on one of the steps and just like somehow my other foot like landed on my ankle as it twisted. So it was definitely like very swollen, bruised, like injured. And I continued on like drinking the rest of the night, like bar hopping and just having people like piggyback me around. And then I woke up the next morning, like, uh, <laughs> I gotta go to the hospital. <laughs> this is wrong. 
don't want to leave the party to do that. Take care oh. of a broken leg. Yeah. How did you yeah. break your teeth? I fell out of a parked car, like just face first. Like the stories just go on. They're, <laughs> they're just, just terrible. Um, did any of these boyfriends, girlfriends sit down with you and uh, say, Shelby, we love you and we hate to see you hurting yourself like this? Yeah, I think I like played off a lot of the scenarios and situations to be like less than, you know, what they were. And so I kind of, especially to my family and they weren't, you know, they do their own thing. And my mom actually lives out of state now and she travels a lot with my stepdad, you know, and because I had like, I held that job for like 10 years and my bills were always getting paid. Um, I was just able to kind of really mask like what was really going on, you know, and I did have friends like tell me things. And I had friends that were straight up like, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. You know, if you drink like that, like that's not fun for me. <laughs> and, and so I, um, but I just, there was no like intervention as far as like going to rehab or treatment. Like that was never like presented to me um, prior to, to when I, you know, asked for help, which I still didn't even end up going to rehab at that point. I was able to like, just move right into a sober living and go to AA. Um, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I just think I like, I was in such denial and like believed the denial that I was able to kind of play it off. Like there was nothing like, you know, it wasn't as big as it, it looked or seemed. Paint me a portrait of what led to the phone call to your girlfriend who was sober yeah so i think i was like still in a blackout like i i like, actually sent like a text you know i think at first and it was just like hey if i maybe was like thinking about possibly getting sober like i was still even like what you know do i want to send this text or not and i also honestly like i thought she would just like send me a book or a link or tell me to go like check out an AA meeting, you know, or something. And, um, cause I knew she like did AA and stuff, but I, my, I did not think that my, her response was going to be like, pack up your stuff. And even, you know, we had some mutual friends and she called them to like, come help me pack up my stuff. Like it was like into action mode right away. And I, um, I really wasn't anticipating that. You know, it's, it's like hard to explain almost like, you know, divine intervention that like came through me. It was like that brief moment of like clarity for like one second to like send a text that was like, I need help, you know, and somebody was on the other line and was able to to help quick. So she didn't come get you. You did you get on a plane? Did you drive? I drove. So I, a forerunner and my <laughs> friends came, packed everything in my forerunner, um, completely out of my apartment. And then, um, yeah, I was like in the car the next morning, like, what is happening? <laughs> Guess this is happening. I have nowhere to go. Did you think about turning back around? <laughs> there was a few times. Yeah, definitely. And then when I like got to the sober living and I hadn't had any prior experience, experience with living in sober living and I get there and you know there's 10 other adults like living in this house all together and I'm like what am I, have I done you know I'm on a twin bed like sharing a room <laughs> and I was just like no like what have I done you know but I uh again that like that whatever you know we'll call it God got me here it was like what continued to like push me you know to stay until until I started to feel better 
soon as like those feelings came in and I started to, you know, work the steps and get like relief from like wanting to drink. And uh, yeah, it was just, you know, it's, it's kind of a crazy experience. I feel like unless you really experience it. When you were growing up, did you think there's a God? It's so, there's so much natural beauty out in Utah. It's one of the most beautiful states I've ever seen. I'm not sure if you know, but it's like heavily or majority um, populated by Mormon, like the LDS Mormon church is like the predominant religion there. And my dad was raised in Utah and he was raised Mormon, but he left the church when he was like 18. And then my mom's originally from Pennsylvania. She moved out to Utah to like ski, be a ski bum. And uh, so she wasn't raised with the religion. So when they got, they got married, um, you know, it wasn't, the religion I was raised in or really had anything to do with it. So we were like, I mean, we didn't really, we didn't really go to church or like do anything religious or God oriented or spiritually just like, wasn't like a topic in my household. And every once in a while I would go to church with like a friend. Um, we'd always go to like the Mormon church. So they didn't try to evangelize you. They did at times, but it was kind of, like a few times then I think my mom, you know, we were just like, no, we're not interested. And then they left us alone. And there was a few other, you know, families in the community that didn't. And so I just, me and my brother hung out with like those, those families. And well, Mormons don't drink diet Coke, do they? I mean, let alone alcohol. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, different, I don't know if levels are the word, but yeah, I mean, from like, if you're practicing and really about it yeah they don't drink coffee or caffeine or or, um you know get tattoos things like that but i mean i do know lots of mormons that drink soda and have tattoos probably (laughs) what's your spiritual orientation now yeah so you know coming into that and i know a lot of people with previous religious backgrounds and experiences always kind of can have you know already their internal feelings about that and so I guess I was fortunate in a sense that like when we got to that step and like the amount of times it says God in the book I like wasn't really phased because I didn't have any like negative experience with religion or God and so and I was just so willing to like do whatever anyone else told me to do and I also like was able to kind of right away get fall into since I had that one friend that had like eight years of sobriety and she had a big group of people with long-term sobriety I was like immediately like implanted into this group that was like like long like years and years and years of sobriety and they're like this is what we do and you work the steps and you go to meetings and like we don't drink you know and it was just kind of like I was so naive because it's my first experience and I just was like willing to do whatever and I wanted them to be my friend. So <laughs> I just did all the things, you know, and when we got to step uh, three and I like, you know, made that decision to turn my life and my will over to a power greater than myself, I said, okay, you know, and I started practicing praying, which was not anything I'd ever done prior. And, um, you know, and it, it I like ebbs and flows and you probably like hear that sometimes too. And every once in a while I'll go to church, like they have a non-denominational like church here that's really popular. And so it's called like the rock church. So we'll go there sometimes, um, you know, but I just really tried to like 
find that connection with like my higher power I'll, I'll call God. And um, for me, it's like a feeling, you know, it's like, I know when I am like doing, I don't even say like the right thing, but when I'm like connecting with others and I'm helping other people and I'm showing up and I'm being authentic and telling the truth and um, being honest and stuff, like I feel good, you know, and to me, I'm like, okay, that's my higher power. And then when I'm like being bad and like lying and, you know, sneaking around and doing <laughs> things I shouldn't be doing, I feel that, you know, and I, I know that that's like God, you know, kind of redirecting me. And it's, it's more of that trust portion of like, you know, continuously like trusting and like in the process and in, in God and, and stuff can be a little challenging for me still too. I think it's just like a practice of <laughs> relying on that for, for my experience, at least here in San Diego. And they really like in our meetings, obviously, you know, the big book says God a lot, you know, and then, but it also says like a power greater than yourself. So it's like, just like striving for that power greater than yourself. And I've heard people say like, that can even be like the rooms of AA, you know, or, or anything that's bigger outside of yourself. And so that's kind of what I, I guess I leaned on at the beginning until I could create this like own higher power. And like I said, for me, it's like a feeling that I just try to follow in my heart. <laughs> I guess the tools that I've learned of like, you know, surrendering and letting go of control and, you know, service and helping other people and um, making the amends and stuff like that too. So yeah, some of it, I think more of like the coaching that, that I offer, like with the adhesive community um, and, you know, being a life coach, I gather a lot of tools that way, which like feed into my yoga as well. And again, yeah, looking at fears and just not letting those like be a, like the termination of like where you're going and what you want to do. And um, again, still like, you know, creating this life that you're really like proud of and happy and content and like p at peace, you know, and I think like at peace for me is like, my head, my thoughts and my heart like align. And it's like not always all the time, but like the closer I can get those two spaces to like align, the like more at peace I am. What is iHesive? iHesive is the company that I own and it's all online. And it started out as just a community platform for people who have lost an eye. So I also have a prosthetic eye, which occurred um after I got sober so that's a another story we can dive into but I've been living with a prosthetic eye for the last two years and I was because of you know AA and how valuable I know it is to talk to other people that have drug and alcohol problems and just like the the way that AA works with community and support I like needed that when I was having my eye removed and gonna like wear this prosthetic eye that I knew nothing about so I went to social media to try to find the other people and I first just like shared my story of how I lost my eye and trying to connect with even one or two or a few other people and you know really quickly I connected with like a, there's a ton of people out there that have prosthetic eyes and all different reasons and so I share their story stories um, in blog form. And then since then, over the last year, I've really been building, you know, out adhesive and the services and like what we offer. So I offer one on one coaching, um, we sell some swag. So I've got shirts that say one eye gang and beanies and bookmarks. And then um, I just barely launched yesterday, actually, um, a membership, um, a community membership program. So 
the whole community. We can get together and meet multiple times a month. There's, you know, the whole back end of like different videos that really kind of, I mean, I don't want to say like a 12 step process, but a step process that helped me from, you know, either at the time of eye injury to get back up on my feet and get moving or even still today um, that I use to continue to like strive forward and not let my eye injury or my eye removal hold me back. I have to ask, how did you lose your eye? <laughs> so 10 months into my sobriety, I was still living in San Diego. I took a group of friends back to Salt Lake City to go snowboarding. And, you know, like I said, I grew up there. So very active, like in the mountains, grew up snowboarding. And the last day of our trip, I was in a snowboarding in incident and actually resulted in the removal of my right eye. So they tried to save the eye initially. And I had like two surgeries the week after the incident. And then um, uh, two months later, um, they removed the whole eye. And it just so happened to fall. I celebrated one year of sobriety on April 28, 2021. And then the very next day on April 29th, 2021, they removed the eye. <laughs> Did you run into somebody or they run into you or? Um, no, and it wasn't another person. It was a, a thing. <laughs> I'm not really supposed to talk about it yet. There's is some litigation things going on with the, the details of the event. Okay. But what I'm, well, let me just ask about anger. Um, okay. Were you angry at all about that? Yes, I was. There was definitely anger. There was a lot, I would say, like, because I'm not like a super angry person. I wouldn't say that, like, over anything that's occurred in my life. But I was really confused um, in the sense of, like, why would this happen to me? And I just felt like, oh, my gosh, I put all this work in to get sober. And I finally am, like, on this good path. And then this would happen to me. Um, so that was, that was the place. And I felt so set back, like once again, you know, I was like, I already felt like I'd been set back from just trying to get sober and even set back throughout my whole life. And now it's like one more thing, you know, that's like keeping me from moving forward. And I just like was, you know, really confused to why this would be, what'd be happening to me. So how did you come to some kind of peace or resolution with that yeah so a couple things definitely helped i think once i really like you know aa again the community that i had built the 10 months leading up to the injury like i was so amazed at like every single day you know these people in the community were at my doorstep i didn't drive for a really long time so they were driving me around they brought me groceries and ice cream and helped me clean my room and do my laundry and so you know all of that support from the aa community first like helped me so much in that that time and then you know and then adhesive really was like my next thing of like what really ignited like that healing process and being able to help other people and connect with other people. So I didn't feel as alone. Um, and then realizing that, you know, these kinds of things like can and do happen. Um, and we don't have to like be alone <laughs> with that or with anything that we're going through. I felt like so much healing occur, you know, once I really started to like connect with other people that are also lost an eye. Community 
contributes so much to healing. If you're there with your people, you heal better. Your body heals, your spirit heals. It all works better. And I don't think I, prior to getting sober, really realized that. Like, I definitely had friends and like, and I would swear that like, you know, these groups of people I was partying with were like, you know, my rider dies and, you know, but like to, to have a community that's like, you know, all in and that you can relate with on, you know, what you're going through and your struggles and they have like valuable insight to offer and like what's helped them like that's you know, was such a different experience for me. It's helped me so much. How do you compensate in depth perception? Because you don't have any vision in your right eye, correct? Correct. Yeah, it's been completely removed. And it's a prosthetic. So it's just a fake, fake glass eye. Do you ever um, pop it out to freak people out? Yeah, well, I, I can't, it's hard for me to take out like I have this little like suction cup, like plunger thing that I have to like use. I know people that can just take it out with their fingers. I haven't gotten to that level yet, I guess. But I definitely I have a couple different ones. So this one, it's green and it kind of matches but it's a little brighter green than my normal and then I have a few other like fun styled ones so there's a an ocular there's a couple ocularis but one of the ocularis that I work with which are the people that make the prosthetic eyes um she lives up in Portland and she makes like anything and everything that you would want or could or any crazy ideas like to put on a, an eye she'll make so I have like a rainbow apple and and a star that glows in the dark and <laughs> So it makes it funner, you know. No skull and crossbones. No, I should. I think someone has that, but <laughs> she's probably could make another one. I know one of the gals because I follow other girls and guys that she makes eyes for. And yeah, there was somebody had a ghost one the other day. I saw them wearing <laughs> on social media. Now, some people do the eye patch for effect. I eye patched for a while at the beginning. Are people rude? Yeah, I mean, not in a rude way. I have lots of people in person that are always, um, always complimentive. Yeah, at least to my face, you know, like, I, but I think they are. Everybody that I see <laughs> that sees my eyes are always like, that's so cool. You know, most of them don't know what it is. Like, that's the most common thing. They're like, is that is that a contact? Like, can you see out of it? Like, what is that? I've only ever had one girl. She actually works at In-N-Out Burger, which is like a fast food joint. And I was drove through and she was like, is that a prosthetic eye? And I was like, you're the first person to ever know <laughs> like randomly what that what it is. But I was like, yeah. Um, but people on social media, that's where they get rude and just, yeah, it's crazy what people will say <laughs> there. But that doesn't really affect me at all because I don't, there's complete strangers because then they'll like attack one another too. Like it, it's, it's crazy what people on social media do. Where did the name Ihensive come from? Ihensive. Yeah, yeah. So I... I'm in the process. And one of the goals for adhesive is making adhesive eye patches. So they're the ones that like stick on almost like a, a band aid rather than like the ones that strap around the head. So that's been in the works, you know, to manufacture and get those on the market. So a little bit about like that, because I took like, you know, adhesive and eye patch. So but then I also really liked adhesive because like the word cohesive, which means like the act of like sticking together tightly. Um, was 
you know, a kind of a play on words too. And everybody in the community is eye related vision loss prosthetic eye. So kind of smushed some of the things together and came up with iHesive. You're a community builder. Thank you. That's, yeah. I feel like I, like what we talked about me being like younger and like really wild and very social and always being social. I think this is like, is my like purpose, you know, is like building communities. And I really enjoy bringing people together and like making sure that people feel connected and supported and seen. And so it's pretty open for anyone that's like been in a life altering event. I work with everybody. I do one-on-one coaching. So I have a few like moms that I work with that have little kids that have prosthetic eyes because I've hosted two virtual conferences for the community as well. And so one day I'd like to have like an in-person conference. And so, you know, I've been thinking details on that. It unites people. They have something in common. And so if little kids can see older people, then it normalizes it. They don't feel so alone. Totally. And that's why I would love to have like the kids there too, because anytime I have come across kids with a prosthetic eye, you know, it's just like their eyes, they're just so happy. We have this promise that our best days lie ahead. I really get that sense with you that you you know you're building something. Thanks. I actually needed to hear that, I think, today. <laughs> I am, you know, and it's like I love what I do and I have like so much um, belief in like the amount of people to help and the people out there and just helping people, you know, but sometimes I get caught up in like the today, like, oh my gosh, am I doing enough? You know, like, have I, (laughs) am I good enough, you know, to do this? Like, is this what people want? Like, will this work? You know? And, and so I think I actually needed to hear that today (laughs) too. It's important for people not to feel isolated. It's the most important Mm -hmm. thing there is. The Surgeon General of the United States has talked about the importance of connecting people, which is the antidote to isolation, addiction, is connecting people in small, healthy communities who cheer for each other. Totally. Yeah. And I think there's been studies, too, that, yeah, people like live longer and happier. If you and I were struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived was this recording of your voice, what is your legacy? I think you nailed it when you said you're a community builder. Like, I I love that. I think I want to be known as building community, bringing people together. You are the glue. Mm -hmm. Shelby Perry, you are the glue. Yes. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. I honor you. I acknowledge everything you've done. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you again so much. And you may find Shelby Perry at iHesive, E-Y-E-H-E-S-I-V-E, iHesive, like I adhesive, iHesive, and uh, look for her in the One Eye Gang. Shelby, thank you. I really, it's a privilege to speak with you, and I admire you. All the best. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins & Owens tries to keep us legal. 
Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported manlistening.com, In Her Words, the podcast, and now voicelockit.com on video and film. Thank you all. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.